0: Well, I do turn to the passage we had read to us from Acts. We started two weeks ago looking at this, uh, the second volume, really, of a one-volume work, or a one-work by Luke, who sets out to do something for you. If you're interested in Christianity, you've been invited along to this gathering this evening, you've shown some interest in finding out what all the fuss is about, what Christians believe, Luke determined that he was going to write and explain all of that to someone he knew called Theophilus. We think Theophilus is an individual, that he was a prominent person. He may represent a bunch of people in a similar situation to yourself, or he may in fact have been an individual. That's irrelevant, really, for us this evening. But he's writing to explain what has happened in Jesus Christ. And he's taken a lot of time to do that, Uh, after careful research, he's given us this two-volume work in which he's talked about what Jesus began to do and to teach. He's now explaining in the second part of his work what Jesus is doing now, because he's writing in the context in which Jesus is no longer around. He's not there for you to go and see and hear. People who are reading this, including Theophilus, never met Jesus. They were never part of the company of his followers. They weren't there when the events that are so central to Christianity took place. And Luke wants Theophilus to be absolutely sure that the things he's heard and the information he's received and the things he's been taught are worth trusting, that they're reliable. And as we come to the book of Acts, one of the things that strikes you as you read it is that It is governed by the events that he's describing, well, he's described at the end of Luke, but now he describes again, he repeats at the beginning of Acts, that center around the disappearance of Jesus. Disappearance from our perspective, from Luke's perspective, it is from the moment Jesus was, this is his language in verse 2, taken up. He uses it twice in verse 2 and verse 11. Taken up into heaven. And uh, he's echoing what he told us in the first volume, in chapter 24 of Luke. While he blessed them, that is, while Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And so if you were to ask, what is the main story of the book of Acts? It is this, that the exalted Lord Jesus is the prime mover in the spread of his reign, his reign of grace, through the growth of his word into all the world. The exalted Lord Jesus is the prime mover in the spread of his reign of grace through the growth of his word through all the world. And in many ways, the ascension of Jesus is both the climax of the gospel narrative and is the foretaste, it's a an appetizer for the great end-time event. This age we live in is going to be bracketed by the disappearance and reappearance of Jesus Christ. They're absolutely fundamental to understanding where we are in the scheme of things, because the Bible story is that. It is a story. It's a story of God's activity in the world. Well, one of Luke's objectives is to reassure Christians that Jesus' absence in heaven right now, he's not absent from heaven, he's absent from us in heaven, does not make him either inactive or distant from us, but rather that he's very active in the world. So I want to look tonight at the ascension that brackets the passage we are looking at tonight, which is verses 1 1 to 11. And uh, I want you to notice just two very simple things. Always worry when a preacher tells you there are two simple things. Worry even more when he says they're short. Uh, and and when, he, when I tell you there's two, don't kind of reassure yourself that he doesn't have ten points this evening because the two are good points. And they're simply these. So the ascension of Jesus that is described here, being taken up into heaven, is the end of the beginning and the beginning of the of the end it 's the end of the beginning. The ascension marks the end of the beginning. Look at how he puts it this in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven so he 's giving us a shorthand account of the life and times of Jesus Christ, including his His birth, his life, his suffering, his appearances, alive after his death, and the many convincing proofs that Luke has referred to. And now he's adding to the summary he gave, and he gives examples of of the appearances that Jesus gave to his followers. And those examples that he gives, including the examples that he mentions here, when he presented himself, verse 3, alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In the gospel, he was very clear about giving us these visible proofs that the disciples received that this was Jesus and that Jesus was physically alive. The point of the appearances was to stress the physicality of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The point of the appearances was to stress the fact that that no part of him was dead. There was nothing about Jesus that was dead. It wasn't just that his memory lives on. It wasn't just that the heart will go on, in the language of the Titanic movie. It's more than that. Jesus, When we say Jesus is alive, he's saying this is, this is the reality. The tomb was empty. The body wasn't there. Jesus appeared. He spoke to people. He was seen by people in a variety of contexts, in different places at different times, to varying numbers of people. They saw him when they did not expect to see him. And he spoke to them. And he invited them to touch him. He invited them, and he said something like this, as Luke records in chapter 24 of his gospel. He said, it is I myself... "'Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. "'Touch me and see. It's me, myself,' Jesus says to his disciples. "'And he ate and drank with them in their presence. "'He spoke words that they could interact with.'" Not only was Jesus part of the world to come, but Jesus was part of their world then. He was there with them in that place, Luke wants us to remember that. Jesus appeared alive after his passion. Peter, who was one of those who was there in the upper room and saw him, always stressed this aspect of the resurrection. Later on in Acts, in chapter 10, he says this to the people. We are witnesses of all that he did. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead so this Jesus is no phantom this is not a spiritual experience this is not a vision that these men and women have had as people might imagine in fact it was an entirely normal unreligious event the risen Jesus met with his people under ordinary circumstances And Luke says that after careful investigation, he is convinced of the historical reliability of the evidence that he had received from the eyewitnesses of the physicality of the the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what that means is this. It means that death has been undone in the case of Jesus. The whole process of death has been reversed, stood on its head. And it means more than this. In, in the book of Acts, it means that this restoration of Jesus from death and deadness to life and lifeness. I'm in America so I can invent words, just like you've been doing for the last 200 years. This, this resurrection of Jesus in, in this way spells restoration for those who are his people and for the entire cosmos. Restoration is on the agenda of God. And the resurrection of Jesus emphasizes that reality. Now one of the things that Luke does in talking about Jesus is he constantly shows how the Lord Jesus himself understood himself and understood what was going on in his life. From the very first public address that he gave in the synagogue in in Nazareth, where he took the scroll of Isaiah, I would have said Isaiah, but I'm learning the language, Isaiah. He takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he sets the tone by immediately identifying himself with this figure that Isaiah describes called the servant of the Lord. And there are servant elements that you find throughout the Lord Lord Jesus' life as he is rejected by his people, as he's anointed to speak the gospel, as he's despised, as he is taken and killed, suffers as the suffering servant of the Lord. There's no doubt that Jesus identifies himself with a servant. One of the other features, however, in Jesus' life is that He often identifies himself also as the Lord, so he does things only God can do. He heals the sick, he casts out demons, he raises the dead, he rises himself from the dead. Indeed, even on the cross, while he's pinned on the cross, he is reigning there. John, when he's describing it, even uses the language of exaltation, of, of enthronement, when he's describing Jesus on the cross. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The Lord Jesus is not only the servant of the Lord, he is the reigning Lord. Even in utter weakness, he is accomplishing his most decisive victory over his enemies. So the Lord becomes the suffering servant predicted by Isaiah, but was also the exalted Lord who was going to resume his glory that he had with his father before the world was. In fact, Paul puts it like this, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And there is such a thing as a church in the world today because there is one who stood in resurrection flesh and declared all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Of all nations. So a moment I want you just to pause and reflect on this. That We as Christians very often look back to the cross, and we should look back to the cross, and we look forward. Many of us perhaps don't look forward as we should. We look forward to the return of Jesus in power and glory. But I wonder how many of us ever look up and think that this Lord Jesus whom we love and serve, is right now the exalted king. He has been taken up. He is exalted. He is made very high, to use the language of Isaiah. Already he is very high. And already he is exalted. And in the book of Acts, one of the prevailing themes is that Jesus is exalted. He has ascended. Samus David, he anticipated this event when he describes this figure. He asks the question, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? And the answer is, Well, I can't and you can't. Because your hands and my hands are unclean and our eyes are unclean and our lips are unclean and we cannot stand in the holy place. But there's one who can. Who is this one? It's the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? It's the Lord God Almighty. And in royal procession, from the wilderness he comes and he ascends the hill of the Lord and he, as- he enters into the holy place, into the very throne room of God. Who is that one in Psalm 24? Well, it's the same Lord Jesus. He has ascended. Jesus has ascended. He has gone up on high. Well, it's this ascending, about to ascend Jesus. Who tells his disciples, orders them. He orders them, do you notice, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So everything is is coming to a, a high point. Here is the end of the beginning. This is going to mark a decisive point in the history, the story of God's redemption. And they are to wait. They're not to rush out onto the streets, preach the gospel. They're to stay Wait for the promise of my Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to you? Do you have to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit's promised blessing comes on you? Well, of course not. Most Christians in the world couldn't afford the fare to Jerusalem in the first place. No, he's referring to these disciples. The apostles are to wait. and Why are they to wait? Well, because Jesus hasn't been exalted yet. He hasn't ascended up to the Father, and the product of that ascent has not been given, the promised Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus spoke four times of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he kept, keeps telling them, I've got to go away before he can come. It's to your advantage that he comes So, therefore, I have to go. So, therefore, it's to your advantage that I go. I have to go before he comes. This is the next phase in the story of Jesus. The next phase in the story of Jesus, he teaches his disciples, is I go to the Father, and the Father sends you the Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. Me no go, the Spirit no come. Simple. And of course, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit wasn't active. The Holy Spirit's been active since the creation of the world. Just as the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has been active since the beginning of creation. He is the very word that spoke creation into existence. He's there in the theophany, appearing, appearing to people throughout the history of redemption. It's him that Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees in Uh, When he goes into the temple and sees the Lord high and exalted, who is it? Jesus says, Isaiah saw me. He's always been there. The Spirit's always been there. But just as something unique and irreversible happened when Jesus came into the world at Bethlehem, the Word became flesh. The second person of the Trinity took manhood into Godhood. There is a man in heaven. There is a man in heaven, the man Christ Jesus. So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was going to come into the world in a way that was unique and irreversible. He was going to come and his people, the people of Jesus. And he was going to come and dwell with them and take residence in the life of the individual believer and in the church. In a way that is eternal, he will never ever depart from his people or his church. And for all eternity, the Spirit of God will indwell the people of God and the church of God. Jesus says to the disciples, you have to wait till I'm enthroned and the gift is sent. And you're to wait in Jerusalem. Well, could we not Could we not go to Bethany? You know, we know some people who've got you know, they pray well off and they've got they make good meals there. Mary and Martha are there. Martha's there, she's a great cook. We could go there. No, it has to be Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? These little details are absolutely vital, of course, because of the historical and theological significance of the city of Jerusalem. With respect to God's dealings with people, with Israel. Jerusalem is associated with the promise of God to rule over his people. The temple in Jerusalem was significant because it was out of the temple was going to come living water. The Spirit of God was going to be active. Ezekiel saw that. It was absolutely vital. Jerusalem is the place. Jerusalem is identified with the kings from David's line. Jerusalem is the focus of the promises about the last days, days, days when people would be drawn to Zion to hear of Israel's God, and days in which when they're talking about these end-time days in the, in the Old Testament, days in which the word of the Lord will go out from Zion, go out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. A place where Jesus accomplished all the great redemptive end-time events in his, his life, establishing a new covenant with people. That was Jerusalem. They were to wait there because that was where it was all going to begin. That's where God promised it was all going to start. And rivers of life would flow from Jerusalem. And words of grace would flow from Jerusalem. And the gospel would go out to the world from Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem. There's another aspect here. You can't read the story of Jesus being taken up. And the disciples waiting and then being baptized by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you can't read that story without thinking of another story in the Bible. You're wondering which one it is. I thought you'd know it automatically. Or, well, the story of Elijah and Elisha, or Elisha, or whoever, you, whatever you call him, in this side of the pond. You remember Eli- Elijah was the one who was taken up into heaven. We have a picture, somewhere on the Atlantic, we hope we'll get here, that a friend of mine painted in my first church. The only religious painting ever painted, and he was only starting out, and it was, you know, he could give away pictures in those days. You couldn't afford the pictures now, uh, the ones he paints today. But we have this picture of Elijah being taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. And down in the corner of the picture, there's this white cloak that falls, and a little chappy down here by by the river, and this is Elisha, and he's receiving the cloak of Elijah and the power of Elijah. Elisha is the one who has the power and goes on to succeed him. And you see a picture of that here. You see what's happening also in the day of Pentecost. We're being taught in the opening part of this book is that these disciples, these apostles are in fact going to be the successors of Jesus. They're going to have an effusion of His power. They're going to be given the gift of His Spirit. In a sense, the Acts of the Apostles isn't all that wrong in describing this book because it's the Acts of the Apostles and the words of the Apostles as they take the word and as they continue the word and work of Jesus going out into the world. And so you find them acting like the suffering servants of the Lord, suffering for Jesus' sake, being put through grief for Jesus' sake, and like Jesus, bearing it, and you find them demonstrating, as Jesus did, the power of God, the power of God over evil and unbelief, the power of God over demons and darkness. In other words, this ascension, you see, is meant to be a transfer of prophetic responsibility to the apostles along with the promise of enabling power to come. So we don't go to Jerusalem to wait for the Spirit. The Spirit has come. The gospel's already left Jerusalem. It's already gone out into all the earth. The Spirit who came at Pentecost is present indwelling the life of every believer. Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The ascension was the end of the beginning. It was also the beginning of the end. Yes, the last days started, the day Jesus left and went back to glory. We're living in the last days. Some of these prophecy nuts are right. But we've been living in the last days since the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you what know, us there to wait? This is what he says to them. there to wait for the coming of the Spirit, which will come upon you. Now, that language comes from Isaiah again, chapter 32, until the Spirit comes upon us from on high. And the interesting thing is the context of that Isaiah reference. The context of that reference is the promise of a transformation of the natural world, this cosmos, this creation that's all around us. That is what's going to be transformed. And the inauguration of a new era, a new day, An era of peace and justice and prosperity for the people of God. And and other passages in Isaiah confirm that the gift of the Spirit is an indication of the arrival of this new era promised for for the last days. And it's talking about that, you see, that gets them, the disciples, the apostles, thinking then about the kingdom of God. Because as they thought of the last days and they thought of what God had promised, they thought of the government of the world, of God's Messiah. When they talk about the kingdom of God here, you know they're not confusing the kingdom of God with God's governmental rule of the world that we call providence, the fact that everything is governed by God and he's in charge of everything that's happening. They didn't confuse it with that. They, they understood the connection with God's king, exercising sovereignty in the world. They recognized the connection with that figure that Isaiah speaks about who will be crowned with kingly authority and will reign as God's king. Jesus had taught them about the kingdom of God, taken them to the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He taught them to understand the Bible Christologically, that is with Jesus himself as the center of the Bible. So when they asked Jesus, Well, is it, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They weren't out they weren't actually off the planet. They they weren't necessarily off message here. They had they had picked up that Jesus was talking about restoration, and they did understand that Jesus had come to fulfil the promise of kingship. He was great David's greater son. He was the king who would reign over all the nations. He was the one to whom God would give the nations as an inheritance, as Sam 2 says. But they must also have heard from Jesus what he had said to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, my people would be fighting but my kingdom is not from the world. They'd already learned that lesson, I'm sure. But what they hadn't learned is that the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus was going to take on a different and temporary shape. So when they asked the question, is it now? Are are you going to do it all now? You know, the transformation of nature, the settling of all the issues, people in the world. The solving of all the problems. Are you going to do it now, Lord? Is it now? Or what were they doing? Well, they were asking a question that was beyond their pay grade as apostles and ministers of the gospel. It's not given to us to know. Jesus makes that clear. The times and the seasons are the Father's business, not yours. Aren't there some people you wish had heard that? They're not your business. Well, what is our business? Our business is to understand that the kingdom of God has arrived and that the work of restoration has begun. It has begun now. You see, the ascension inaugurates the kingdom of grace. When the Lord arose and ascended into glory as king, He became king, not just notionally, but he became king really. He now rules history and nature in the service of redeeming, creating, and ruling his church in the world. He says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Spirit has come in you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The apostles are being made the foundational core of this new servant community appointed by Jesus to bring salvation to Israel and the nations. The church was not meant to be a geopolitical entity. church's influence in the world was to be more extensive in its global reach, more intensive in its redemptive power than anything the world had seen. In the Old Covenant, the kingdom was typically focused on the outer glory of Israel's civil and ceremonial structures, and today the glory of the church is hidden behind a cross. You don't see in its perfection. Maybe you're here this evening and you're rather disillusioned with the church, and we understand this is not the way it's going to be. This is the way it is. This is the way we are. We are a sinful people. We've confessed our sins in your hearing tonight because we know ourselves to be sinners. The glory of the church is hidden behind a cross. In the words of Luther, the face of the church is the face of a sinner. And the book of Acts is going to be absolutely honest both about the conquest of the church and about the failures of the church. We're not here to play games. But how do we see the kingdom now? We see the kingdom now in the public ministry of the Word and sacraments, in church discipline, in the fellowship of the saints, in the hearing of the Word, in the service of deacons, in the witness of apostles and ordinary believers to, the, to Christ and the world. The church is not the same as the kingdom, but it points to the kingdom. The kingdom. It proclaims the kingdom. The church is a down payment of sorts. Indeed, the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of believers. When Jesus called the apostles to be his witnesses, Isaiah, bells would go off in their heads. Because Isaiah says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servants whom I I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he I am God and there is none like me you are my witnesses declares the lord and i am your god the apostles are the primary eye and ear witnesses to jesus their witnesses unique unrepeatable in the bible i become a believer when i believe their witness For myself, when I read their story, when I hear what they're saying they saw and heard, when I believe their testimony, Jesus said this in John 17, when he prayed for all those who would believe in him through their witness. So my witness is secondhand. When I witness to you, I say to you, Will you please listen to their witness? Will you please read their story? Will you please join me in investigating their claims? Would you please consider that if what they said is true, it changes the world for you? It has changed the world for me. It's changed the world for many of my friends in this room and around the world. It has brought to me and to people right round this globe an understanding of the universe. More than that, a relationship with a person. And frankly, it has dealt with the most basic needs of humanity. It goes to the heart of all the issues that rise to the surface in my individual and our personal lives. Because what happened in Jerusalem started a story that has been going on around the world ever since, and my story has become part of that story. The ascension initiates the kingdom of grace, and the ascension anticipates the kingdom of glory. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And just as the, Luke's account begins, way back at the beginning of Luke's gospel, with angelic supernatural beings appearing, some supernatural beings turn up right now at the end. And they say, why are you standing looking? right now. Are you worried you'll never see him again? The angels recall to mind to the minds of these ear and witnesses that for six weeks he'd been going and coming, going and coming, going and coming. Here one minute gone, but then he came back again. Now the angels are there to say to them, look, wasn't that good for the last six weeks when he would come You'd be sitting eating and there he would be, he'd arrive, spend time with you. Well, now he's going for good, but not quite for good. This same Jesus. This same Jesus. The same one you ate with, the same one who spoke to you, the same one you saw and touched, this same Jesus will come again, not this time privately, not this time dependent on some predictor somewhere telling you that he's come in this or that or other form. There will be no doubting. Every person in human history, every person in human history, whether currently alive or not, will be alive on that moment. Every person in human history will see him. He will be visibly seen. Every eye at last shall see him. He will come personally, gloriously, powerfully, with great glory, Jesus had said. Every eye would see him, John would say. It was the beginning of the end. And now everything we do is moving inexorably forward to that next moment in the calendar of redemption. That's the next item on the agenda. And you won't read about it in the papers the next day. And you won't hear a report about it on the news broadcast. Because on the day that Jesus comes, that's it. That's it. That's the end of our story. The Culmination of His. My question to you this evening is, have you integrated the story of your life into the story of His? By believing the witness of these people who knew Him, pray. Father, we pray tonight that you would please take the good news of the gospel, this good news of all that has been done for us in him, write it on our hearts, and draw us to trust him, we pray, in his strong name.